First Peter, chapter 1, verses 13 to chapter 2, verse 3. Be holy. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of God. So we continue with um, 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, continuing on verses, uh, between verses 4 and 10. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and the stone that causes people to stumble, and the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much. It would be a great help if you have that passage in front of you. It's on page 1217 in your church Bibles at the back. Uh, Our title today is Growing in Holiness. Growing in Holiness. Does your heart sink? What does the picture of a holy person mean to you? Someone with long flowing robes wearing a hair shirt and sandals? Someone incredibly boring who goes around looking miserable and who is really, really dull? Nothing could be further from the truth. Real holiness, the kind the Bible talks about, is the complete opposite. Real holiness is immensely attractive. Real holiness brings joy. Real holiness is vibrant and energetic. Real holiness means never standing still, but growing until we reach our full potential, living as God intended us to live and ready for heaven. And the passage we're looking at today shows us how we can do just that. Written by Peter. Oh, remember Peter? The one who denied Christ not once, but three times. Here is Peter, a totally transformed man. He's been talking about heaven and the joy that comes when you realize that as a Christian, heaven is where you're heading. And so he now comes to verse 13. Therefore... Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived and ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. What is Peter saying? Well, the first thing he's saying is set your life's direction. Look to eternity. Set your life's direction, look to eternity. In other words, prepare your minds for action. Roll your sleeves up, take off your jacket. Think hard about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. I don't know why it is people think that Christians are the feeble-minded. No, no, we think harder than anybody else. Be steady about what you believe, not swept away by the latest cultural fashion. Look forward to the future, the glory that will be revealed when Jesus returns, as he promised to do. Be prepared to be non-conformists, living now in obedience to God's will rather than your own self-centered desires. And so in verse 15, just as he who has called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy, for I am holy. In other words, dare to be different. Dare to be different. Now the Greek word hagios or holy means different or set apart. Things can be set apart for God. The temple was holy. It was different from other buildings. The day of rest was different from other days, the Sabbath. The Christian is different because he or she has chosen to live for God now and in the future. Now today, that's more of a challenge living in our secular society because culturally and personally, we love to fit in, not to stand out as being different. And it takes courage to stand out from the crowd. 
It's not only a call to live differently, but to be different. Because every Christian is a shop window into the nature of God. Now, there's a sobering thought. We are supposed to show what God is really like. So others see something of God in his followers, his disciples. So at university, I met a fellow first-year law student who had a personal Christian faith. And I knew that he was different. So I asked him a very basic but important to me question. What is a Christian? And one thing led on to another. You see, being different is not being weird. It does mean, though, that you have different priorities, different values, and you're living not just for this life, but for the life to come, after our physical death. So if you're um, uh, asked the question, is this it? Is this life all there is? You will answer that question with a resounding no. The best is yet to come. There's more. It means that you march to a different drummer. You hear the music of heaven and eternity. So firstly, Peter is saying, to reach your full potential as God intended, set your life's direction by looking to eternity. This life is not all that there is. Secondly, well, that's all fine and well, but how are we to live day to day if we're to do that? And Peter sets out four essentials. Here's the first one. Live in reverent fear of your heavenly Father. Verse 17. Since you call me, call on a Father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Now, we live in a world which thinks that God is of no importance. Frankly, you're wasting your time here. Time is precious. Why go to church? He may be called on in an emergency when everything else has failed. Yet that is to make a very serious misjudgment. God is sovereign. He's supreme over all other authorities. God is all-powerful, the one who created the universe, who created you and me. There'll never be another one like you. You're unique. Het is unique. Otto is unique. He's above time and history. He is holy. He cannot look on evil. Have you ever tried to mix oil and water? They don't mix. The holiness of God cannot look on evil. But God is also all-loving. All-loving. You cannot patronize or mess with God. If you choose to live this life without him, he will respect that decision eternally. You will be a frightening thought, God forsaken now and forever, because it was your choice. The judgment mentioned here is not the final judgment. For the moment we become real disciples of Jesus, we cross from death to life. We receive a new life. We are under new management. We're rescued from an eternity without him. And at that moment, too, we become members of his family. He becomes our heavenly father. And so the judging here is the kind of parental discipline found in Hebrews 12.10, when the writer says, 
Our human fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. God disciplines us for our good in order, listen to this, that we may share in his holiness. God is in the change business, changing us to be more like him. And he does it in a way no human parent can. So live in reverent fear of him. Here's the second essential for spiritual growth. And it's this, never forget the cost of your new life. The cost of your new life. Look at verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Now the picture here is of someone in slavery who needs to be bought back. You could redeem a slave. What are we redeemed from? Did you see the answer? An empty way of life. Wow. That's telling us, isn't it? A life without God is an empty way of life. That's a very powerful description. It's very thought-provoking, whatever you think of it. The Apostle Paul, one of the most brilliant intellects of his day, spoke about his way of life before he became a follower of Jesus. Now, he enjoyed all the advantages and privileges of education, status, family background, and social respect. Yet when he did a profit and loss calculation, he produced a very different balance sheet. Listen to this. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I consider them all those advantages, garbage, rubbish. Actually, he uses a much more rude word. It's like a brilliant graduate with a gritting career in the city, drawing all the rewards of wealth, large houses, great holidays, maybe even a trophy spouse, suddenly discovering it's worthless. He's got to the top and he's discovered there's nothing there. Why? Because he was made for so much more than just that. And now he feels he's on a treadmill that he can't get off. He's trapped. In fact, he's a slave. That's where the cross comes in. God loved the world so much that he planned our escape to freedom, our redemption, verse 20, before the creation of the world. And it was accomplished by the precious blood of Christ. So Jesus was sent by the Father to die on the cross in our place. He paid the redemption price, namely death. He was raised from the dead in order to rescue humanity from our self-imposed imprisonment. How can we ignore the extent to which the Father has gone for us? How can we forget it? We talk about some art treasures as being priceless. Leonardo, Mona Lisa, priceless. No, no, this is priceless. The priceless cost of our redemption should motivate us to live a life that pleases God, a holy life. Here's the third thing. The third essential to keep us growing is to read the Bible daily. Look at chapter 1, verse 23. 
You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through, notice this, the living and enduring word of God. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. The aim of daily Bible reading is not just to increase our knowledge for its own sake, but in order that we might live in a different way. Therefore, writes Paul in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. I love that word, crave. Have you, I, have you, I, I remember seeing Hetty with her bottle of milk. You know, she was grabbing it with both hands. You could not take it away from her. That's our attitude, should be, to God's word. The word of God, whether written in our Bibles or taught in sermons or small groups, is the way by which the Holy Spirit brings us to new life. It's enduring. It's imperishable. It has no expiry or best before date. That's why I'm teaching it now. Utterly relevant. And the writer to the Hebrews describes it in this very vivid way, chapter 4, verse 12, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. See, a two-edged sword can't escape it. If God is going to speak to you, if he's speaking to you now, you can't escape. There will be times when we read the Bible or hear it that it hits us right here. One man was given the Bible and he handed it back. He said, I don't like it. It kicks me. Because what happens is that it points to us and says, that needs to change. That's not good enough. Milk here in 2.2 is not to be thought of as something just for the spiritually immature. It is elsewhere in Scripture, but here it's essential for a baby's physical growth. It's God's word for a Christian's spiritual growth. This is not an optional extra. To quote uh, Eugene Peterson, Christians need to read Scripture in such a way that it enters our souls as food enters our stomachs, spreads through our blood, and becomes holiness and love and wisdom. Now, I mentioned at our church annual meeting the words of Paul in his farewell address to the Ephesian elders. Uh, You can see it in Acts 20. He told them that he had not hesitated to proclaim the whole will of God. That's why here at St. Michael's, I've always insisted that we preach from both the Old Testament and the New Testament, because it is the whole will of God, the comfortable bits and the uncomfortable bits so that we do know all of God's will for us. Paul continued in that address by predicting that after he was gone, there would be attacks on the church both from outside and from within. And that is still true today. The attacks are based on distorting the truth, often to fit in with contemporary culture. And looking at verse 23, you'll see the words born again. 
Very sadly, they've been distorted so that a born-again Christian is thought of generally as a sort of tele-evangelist out to get your money. In fact, the words originally came from the lips of Jesus. They're a brilliant description of what happens when a person commits their life to Christ. They are not turning over a new leaf. They have a whole new life. They are a new person. In Roman law, which for my sins I had to study, and Roman law, if you were adopted, you changed your name, and if you had debts from your old way of life, that was f- forgiven. You were a new person. If we have committed our lives to Christ, we are adopted. We are new people, a new identity. And in fact, there is no such thing as a Christian who is not born again. Now, very sadly, there are churches where either the Bible is not recognized as our final authority in all matters of faith and conduct, or where it is not taught fully or properly, so people can't recognize false teaching. Now, I mentioned one such error in a recent sermon. There are theologians who say that it doesn't really matter if Jesus rose bodily from the dead. It's enough that the disciples believed he did. And I encourage the congregation to reply with just one word to that point. Rubbish. It's rubbish. It matters very much that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. For as Paul wrote, if Jesus didn't, our faith is futile. We're still in our sins. Nothing has happened. We're wasting our time. In the Old Testament, we read how Moses spoke to the people shortly before he died. And he told them this never to forget God's laws and to encourage their children too to obey them. Listen to this. These are not just idle words for you. They are your life. These are not idle words for you. They are your life. And the Bible is still our life today. My wife, Trisha, has a lovely story about being at a student conference, and one of the speakers was a retired medical missionary, probably well into her 70s at that stage. And she said this, It's so important to read your Bible regularly and hear from God. The older you get, the more important it becomes. You see, I'm cramming for finals. What an example. I'm cramming for finals. Here's the fourth essential for spiritual growth. It's this. It's full involvement in a Bible-teaching church. Look at 2.4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God, and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, the church is not a building. It's a gathering of people. You are the church. Living stones. We are being built into that spiritual house. It's a process. And what do we do? We are described as a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. Now, the priesthood of all believers is a key New Testament truth. Priesthood is not just a role reserved to a favored few. 
Whatever our ecclesiastical structure, every Christian is called to be part of that holy priesthood, fully involved in the church. Solitary religion is ruled out. Professor Cranfield was a godly New Testament scholar at Durham University when I was there, and he wrote this. The freelance Christian, who would be a Christian but is too superior to belong to the visible church on earth in one of its forms, is simply a contradiction in terms. A contradiction in terms. And the church should be a place of love, where we love one another deeply from the heart. Have a look back at chapter 1, verse 22. Where we rid ourselves of all that stands in the way of love. Chapter 2, verse 1, malice, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Where people are treated equally, whatever their status in the world's eyes, since we're all sinners in need of the amazing mercy, chapter 2, verse 10, which God has lavished on us through Christ. Where we laugh together and cry together. And I've had that privilege for 24 years. Thank you. Where we help those in despair. We may even need to correct one another when we stumble. At the center is Jesus, chapter 2, verse 4, the living stone rejected by some, who called us out of darkness, of an empty way of life, into his wonderful light. You see, the ultimate example of holiness is Jesus, the only one to have lived on this earth completely without sin, And his holiness is immensely attractive. Down the ages, men, women, and children have been drawn to him, drawn by his perfect goodness, eternally grateful for what he went through on the cross for them, physical pain, humiliation, degradation, and for a moment, cut off from the Father. And he said, contrary to a current popular view, he didn't come into the world to condemn it, but to save it. He came into our world to give life, life at its very best, life that would never end. So, yes, I'm praying for Otto and Hetty. I'm praying that one day they too will know this life for themselves, that they will dare to be different They will shun the empty way of life, today founded often on materialism. Isn't that empty? In order to live the life that is life indeed, real life. But I'm not just praying that for them, but I'm praying it for anyone here this morning who has not yet met the living, risen glorious Christ for themselves because that is a life of hope of forgiveness of love that never ends let's pray as we said